Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Y aquí viene el Arsenal que quiere ganarlo. Por uno más, Gabriel Martinelli. Le pega, le pega, Cuti Romero. Queda y está. Lo hizo el suizo Granit Xhaka. Magnífica definición de zurda aprovechando el hombre de más. A los 21 del complemento. Están arriba los Gunners. 3 a 1. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra. As always with James from Gunnerblog. James, a very, 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 very good evening to you. Good evening to you too, Andrew. What a weekend it's been. Oh, oh, what a weekend. I don't know if, you know, if you've seen it, but uh, on last night's match of the day, shout out Ian Wright, who reprised his It's a Great Day um, mm. in the post-match analysis. <laughs> I did see that. And actually, uh, because I'm only home uh, less than a, a couple of hours, normally what I would do is a, a kind of... Um, you know, do a jingle based on some of the commentary. I got a little bit, I just didn't have time to do a musical jingle, um, you know, because we're recording at seven o'clock. We want to get the podcast out for people. So I did not have time to make a musical uh, intro, but I will play at the break before we go into part two. I will play the It's a Great Day jingle from last season because I think it stands the test of time because every time you beat Tottenham, it is a great day. There's no two ways about it. Yeah, we've got to get a bit more life out of these jingles. You know, you put For sure. so much effort in. Uh, what about this, though, to start? Here's on. a little thing. We'll play a game just to start. This is quite tricky now. You might not be able to get this. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to take out my uh, my little Akai keyboard here. Mm -hmm. little synthesizer type thing. Got it plugged in. Okay. I'm going to play a tune. And I want you to tell me... Uh, what it is, if you can think of the tune. All right. All right. Here we go. Hang on. A little flourish at the end there. Wow. I enjoyed it. Good. <laughs> I've got no idea what it is. Um, you don't? No. Would you dare sing along to it? I mean, if I was to, you know, say that a particular team that we played at the weekend got battered, would that spark it into See, life? It, <laughs> I was thinking before you played, it's going to be Tottenham get battered everywhere they go. Yeah. But then it was so disguised beneath all the synthesization that yeah. I had absolutely no 
sense that that was it. Okay. Well, I apologize. Can we do I, it again? Sound- Can we do it again? And this time I'll sing along. Uh, That's what the people will want. They will, but they might also want us to never play anything like that again. So just to just to err on the side of caution, I thought that was going to go down a storm, and obviously uh, my musical ear is off, perhaps due to the copious amounts of, um, you know, uh, there were beverages taken this weekend, as my voice. Well, I'm sure everyone else at home was seeing a lot. I hope so. I, yeah, I'm sure it's me who's, who's the fool, <laughs> as usual. Um, my favourite post-match experience... Um, mm which happened as I was walking from the stadium to the pub yesterday. I was walking down a sort of Islington side street and there was this beautiful scene of a grandmother waving as a car pulled away from her house. And obviously the family had been there for Saturday lunchtime and she was stood on her doorstep waving. The car pulled away and I, I it was a beautiful sunny day and I just looked at that scene and thought... Oh, that's so sweet, you know, so charming. It couldn't be improved by anything at all. <laughs> and then as the car moved off, a child in the back, who can only have been about five years old, shouted from the window, Bye, Nanny! I'll have a few words with those Tottenham scum at school. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. a, that child is being brought up right, that's for sure. Yeah, there was an approving nod um, from the from Nanny. And uh, we shared a chuckle together. So, yeah, that was great. And it was a great weekend all around. To be honest, Mm. you know, I didn't know that it could get much more fun. But then, um, you know, they kept cutting away to Sir Alex Ferguson as Manchester City put six past Manchester United. So that was really the icing on the cake. Unfortunately, I was on uh, I was on an airplane while that was all happening. I did see the first goal in the airport. but by the time I'd landed in Dublin, it was over and it was 6-3. And I read that somebody said it could have been about 10 goals to Manchester City, which is, a, you know, on the one hand, extremely funny when it happens to Manchester United. Because there was a lot of talk, wasn't there, after the game yesterday. People were talking in the pub about, like, what do we, what kind of result do we want? Yeah. Uh, you know, in the, in the Manchester derby, like, oh, do we want United to win? you know, maybe a draw, that would be good for us. You know, both teams drop points. I was like, no, fucking Manchester United to be destroyed. That is what I want. Because I don't think, you know, our season is necessarily going to come down to whatever result transpires in the in the Manchester derby or even maybe between the games between us and, and Manchester City. But, you know, to to affect the teams that I suppose you look at as as rivals for the top four, I want them to lose as much as possible. So, you know, City are a machine. We can all see that. They're, a, you know, footballing. I don't know how to really describe them and Holland and what, what they do. It, it yeah. is. It is. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. So I kind of, you know, have to just put them in their own box. But if Manchester United can be destroyed and humiliated in the derby, then I'm all for that. I was up for that. It's... Well, listen, as incredible as City look, and they do, um, there's one team above them in the Premier League. That is true. the mighty Arsenal. That is true. Now, listen, I am a little bit... um, How will I say this? I I haven't... I saw match of the day, Mm. right? I saw match of the day, but I haven't really had a chance to sort of look over 
all the post-match stuff, all the interviews, you know, the various contentious bits and pieces, but I have downloaded the game. So if, if we get to a point in the podcast where we're talking about something where my recollection or my view of it is unclear, I can just, you know, go to that particular point in the game and fast forward and we, we can have a look at that. So okay, let's, let's talk about the game because that's obviously um, extremely important to this discussion, to this podcast. And I want to ask you how you were feeling before kickoff. What was your what was your pregame mood like? Pretty good. I mean, mm. regular listeners will remember. I think we both predicted Arsenal to beat Spurs. What else could possibly happen? Of course, um, in this game, and you know, revenge was in the air a little bit. We suffered a really bad defeat. Uh, White Hart Lane towards the end of last season. Mm. And I do think, uh, as a trend, these derbies tend to go for the home team. Um, And the atmosphere was cracking and crackling. I mean, it was brilliant, right? You were at the stadium. From about an hour before kickoff, it was pretty noisy around the ground, which, again, kind of buoyed me. Um, Sure. So I felt pretty good. How about you? I felt I wasn't at all nervous. I really wasn't. And we were sort of waiting for the for the team news to drop to see who'd be fit, who wouldn't be fit, who was going to be in, who was not going to be in. And even before that, I wasn't feeling nervous at all, you know, which is maybe a bit unusual. Uh, I, I'm not going to say I felt like 100% confident because that would be a lie, but I definitely didn't feel the nerves the way that maybe I felt them, you know, when we were going into this fixture last season, not uh, not this fixture, but the game at White Hart Lane. Mm-hmm. I certainly felt a bit more anxious. Maybe it's because it was so late in the season, the stakes were so high, et cetera, et cetera. But I felt pretty good about what we were capable of doing on the day. And, you know, as it turned out, I think, um, you know, I think we, we really made a good account of ourselves, um, particularly in the second half. Um where I thought we responded very, very well to a you know a period late in the first half where we were, we were just a little bit wobbly. Um, so, yeah, let's talk teams. Inchenko was in, Partey was in, Odegaard was back. Um, we knew that basically because he was playing for Norway, so he was going to be fit, but based on the, the Brentford game, he was back in. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, in essence, as, as strong a team as we could put out. Yeah, I guess it's been the preferred eleven uh, for the majority of this season. I, the only debate, I think, really could have been at left back. Um, yeah, but he went with Zinchenko, which I think tells you a bit about how he was approaching the game, and also how he expected Tottenham to approach the game. Um, mm. So yeah, the, the team news was very good, um, and then you know. It's interesting. You think back to this fixture last season, and I've, we've spoken previously about that early Ben White tackle and a, and a moment that kind of ignites the crowd and yeah. ignites the game. And I thought that in this particular fixture, it wasn't a tackle, but it was a, a turn by Gabriel Jesus, just like in their half where he just took the ball away from his man and it brought everyone off their feet and contributed to a pretty electric opening five minutes from Arsenal. Yeah, I mean, I thought we got on top really quickly. It was important to to start well. And it was also quite obvious the way they were going to play. Now, I know they did have a good chance early on, which um, I saw on Match of the Day. Uh, it yeah, was from 14 a f- minutes free in, kick, it was, was it? Yeah, free kick. 
a set piece out on the uh, out wide. I and didn't think it was a foul. To Richarlison, mm. I think it was. I didn't think it was a foul in the first place. I think that was one of the deci- uh, the decisions which made people, well, certainly people around me, were not very complimentary towards Anthony Taylor. It's fair <laughs> no, to say. It was the same at my end of the Right. Um, opinions on that particular issue changed quite a little bit uh, later on. I'm, I'm sure we'll come to that. But it was a very good save from Aaron Ramsdale. But, but Tottenham, I was looking at them and I took a picture about two seconds before Thomas Partey's goal. And it was just to sort of remind myself of the way they were set up with basically 11 men behind the ball. Harry Kane was the furthest man forward and he was midway into the Tottenham half and everybody else is behind the ball. And the way that they try and play or their particular tactics, they just, it was so negative and so dour and so, I mean, I was expecting it, but at the same time, it's pretty dreadful. And it's so reliant on them making the most of their counterattacks and their transitions that, um, you know, the stats at the end, how many shots did we have in the end? 25 or something. I don't know how many it was in the end. But, like, we way, way outshot them and, and did so in the first half as well. But there was only one team going out to try and, and I know play football is um, a very broad term. You can play football in many different ways, but... As a as a as a way that might excite your own supporters, I don't know that they do that. Yeah, twenty two shots to seven. It finished sixty five percent of possession for Arsenal. Um, it's funny you speak about that moment before the first goal because I was watching that first goal again today. And it, you know, you look at it and you see how high up the pitch Arsenal are. Mm. I think Saliba is the deepest man, and he's comfortably inside the Tottenham half. Um, you know, we have ten men in their half, camped in their half, and they're all, about eight of their men are in the width of their penalty box. Um, And it it is, I think Tottenham have had too much credit, to be honest, after this game, even. You know, when I've read analysis and watched, you know, video highlights, I think people have been too kind to them on this performance. Uh, You know, if they'd got the final pass right, they could have created... Oh, the, the match of the day analysis... Yeah, and elsewhere, and I'm not singling out. Any no, no, no. I know, players. I know, but that's that's where I saw it. So I know, I do, I do know what you're talking about. There, yeah, so. I, I think there's been too much credit given. I think Arsenal, uh, I think Arsenal played really well in this game, and they completely dominated Tottenham. And yes, there were fleeting opportunities on the break, and they didn't go Spurs' way. But if you choose to sit back and be so negative and surrender possession, surrender territory then you reduce your chances of pulling off those moments. Mm. Tottenham are lucky. They've got brilliantly clinical forwards and every so often uh, it does work out for them. But Arsenal are playing the numbers. You know, they're saying we're going to dominate the ball. We're going to dominate the pitch. And we believe that that will, you know, ultimately come good for us. And results are king in football. We know that, you know, if Antonio Conte was at Arsenal getting 1-0 wins or playing on the break and it was Mm. bringing us success, we'd all appreciate it. But, you know, these teams are almost level in the league right now. They're achieving a similar calibre of results but playing a very different way. And I would rather watch this Arsenal team all day long. Well, yeah. Yeah, me too. Me too. And you're right to say that we we completely got on top. The the goal 
from Thomas Partey is, is just a fantastic hit. I mean, it feels like it's been in the post since day one. You know, he's had plenty of attempts from distance. Most of them don't come that close. I think there might have been a similar one, whether it was earlier this season or late last season, I can't remember, but a similar kind of effort where he curled it and, and it hit the bar or hit the post. Was that yes. this season? I've got a recollection yeah. of that too. So, he get, you know, he's come close. But what's really interesting about the goal is, and what's interesting about um, the way that Tottenham played and, and the way that they were instructed to play, was the minute Bakayo Saka got the ball, there were two men on him every mm -hmm. single time. Every single time there were two men. And that's fine if you want to stop Bakayo Saka. But the consequence of that, if you're the defensive team, is that you're going to be a man light somewhere else. Unless you're, you know, really moving and you're you're getting people into into those spaces, which they didn't do. Um, so Saka has the ball, gives it to White, White to Partey, Partey, brilliant hit into the top corner, 1-0. And that's kind of like, it's almost like slapping them in the face uh, in terms of how they're playing. Oh, you want to play like that, do you? Well, this is what we'll do. This is what we'll do in response to you just sitting off the ball the way that you're sitting off the ball. You know, it's like, oh, well, they can't score if we sit 11 men behind the ball. Uh, we can do that. And it was quite interesting, wasn't it, to see that Martin Odegaard talked about that after the game, where he said they practiced that kind of uh, move because they felt that Tottenham were going to be sitting behind the ball and, and they might need to take uh, shots from distance or, or to take opportunities, you know, that maybe aren't as clear cut as you would like. Yeah, and I wonder if, I don't know if you've seen Mikel Arteta's celebration, but uh, mm. there was a lot of sort of uh, pointing and I, I wonder if there was a kind of hint of how we worked on that on the training ground mm. because Tottenham did collapse so deep that they vacated that space on the edge of the box and, you know, Partey, once in a blue moon, he does get it right. That was as pure a hit as you'll ever see. Uh, flew into the top corner. And yeah, a brilliant way to open the scoring. And and like you say, in theory, really stick it to Spurs' game plan because when they fall behind in games, mm. life becomes much, much, much more difficult for them. Mm. Um, unfortunately, mm. we allowed them back into it pretty swiftly. We did, didn't we? It was um, not a great passage of play, which led to the penalty. Um, yeah. I think... Uh, we could have made a foul in midfield, perhaps, to stop the Son break. Son went past Partey, didn't yeah, he? And it's I was... pretty much the only thing Son did well in the game. Mm. And maybe um, the only thing Partey did wrong in the game as well was yeah, just not take him out. Just one moment. And I thought, you know, again, you, you you play one of your fullbacks, it's kind of a choice, one of over the other. But Zinchenko, I think, was caught very in field in a sort of midfield position and left Richarlison spare on the right-hand side. So even when the pass was over hit, um, he could get there. You know, goalie comes out. Not sure he needs to stay out as he does. Mm. But even saying all that, Arsenal do win it back. You know, Ramsdale gets to the cross and I think uh, maybe it's White at the far post gets it a, a little bit away. So it's particularly disappointing almost to concede in sort of the second phase of that move. Yeah. Um, really sort of clumsy stuff all around. Yeah, it was a poor touch from Granit Xhaka. Yeah. Um, not a great challenge from Gabriel, obvious penalty. Was there any part of you that felt that Harry Kane might miss? No, but I did think he would go down the middle. I just thought... Um, Why didn't you tell Ramsdale that? I know, I know. <laughs> but I just thought, you know, they spent a week with England, probably penalties being practised. Kane always goes 
often goes, let's say, to the goalkeeper's right-hand side. Mm. I wonder if he'll just stink it. But it's asking a lot for a goalkeeper to not move because you look pretty foolish if it's either side of you. So, yeah, I mean, Harry Kane penalties in North London derbies must be the safest bet going. 100%. It's just like, as sure as night follows day, he's going to get a penalty. Is it like his last four goals in the North London derby uh, have come from the penalty spot? I mean, that's a problem. For us, I mean, you know, he's got a very good record from the penalty spot. We need to stop giving away penalties against Please, Spurs. that would be good. Yeah, I mean, the one uh, yesterday was, I think, definitely a penalty. The one he got um, at White Hart Lane last year, the Cedric one, still annoys me because yeah. <laughs> that's a very, very generous decision. Um, but look, they did get back into it. It was 1-1, and I did think for about 10 minutes we wobbled just a little because of that because definitely you know I, i'm sure the players are thinking it too like for fuck's sake like we've been on top here and then he gets a penalty and then you know it, it can rattle you a little bit but towards the end of the half i mean i i think arteta would have been happy to get them in at halftime but at the same time there were a couple of moments late in the the first half where we looked quite dangerous uh, there was a gabriel jesus chance which he sort of toe poked at at, at Lloris. Um, after some quick feet in the box. So we did kind of get ourselves back on track before the break. Yeah, there were some nervy moments, though. And and I, I noticed in that period, you know, I had centre-backs playing just in front of me. And mm. there was a bit of frustration from them about where players were stood in front of them. You know, like the spacing wasn't quite right. They couldn't find the out balls as easily. You know, they wanted Zinchenko and Shaka and Partey and others to make themselves more available. I think Tottenham were doing a better job closing off the lanes. And that was the period where they, I think, uh, probably it was the game that suited them most. Mm. And I found myself, when we got to half time, feeling a little bit regretful that we hadn't made more of that blistering opening period we had. But I also felt that if Arsenal could play with that kind of tempo and intensity and in intent mm. again, that we had absolutely every chance of winning the game and that we looked like the superior team. So I was delighted when, you know, that proved to be the case. And and pretty key to that is a goal quite swiftly after half time. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that was the consensus as well with the people I was talking to, you know, at the break at half time was like, yeah. we should not be, this should not be a 1-1 game. We should have made more of the, the dominance that we had and we certainly shouldn't have given away a penalty. We should be ahead here. And you can't help but worry a little bit, you know, when when, when you let a, an opposition team back in. But whatever, Mikel Arteta... kind of the exact game you would have anticipated. You know, Arsenal bringing the game to Spurs, mm. maybe not quite making enough of it. Spurs getting a jammy goal um, out of nothing, really. But I saw Arsenal, I think it was maybe on BBC Football's website... It was described as like a high wire, uh, high wire act. Arsenal's game plan, and I, I think that again doesn't give them enough credit. I think it was just Who attacking football, and with attacking football comes an element of risk. Um, you know, Manchester City conceded three goals today, but they scored six. Yeah, and uh, Arsenal played an attacking game, and and it was really pleasing to see that. Whatever happened at half time, whatever was said, 
players came out with a, a steely mm. focus and they didn't seem in any way shaken by that end period to the first half. No, they didn't. They put that behind them. I mean, I think it gives you a chance, you know, to reset mm. and get yourself focused again. And they did that very quickly. The uh, the second goal, missed a big mistake from Hugo Lloris, but Bakayo Saka, uh, who I think had a much better second half than first half, um, you know, there was a shot, I think, where he curled it just wide. Um, he was involved quite a lot on the, on that right-hand side. Again, they were doubling up on him the whole time, but it was his initial shot that was saved. The rebound off the defender goes under Lloris, and Jesus is there. He's strong. He held, holds off the defender and puts it in. Like That must have been right in front of you, basically, was it, where you were? It was, yeah. yeah. I sort of found myself initially wondering quite what had gone on. Saka obviously cuts inside, has the shot. I think the real error, if I'm honest, from Lloris is actually on the first shot. You know, he spills it right in front of him um, and it comes off Romero and sort of skids under him. But mm. I, I, I'm a bit more sympathetic to him with that one because it's kind of a, a freak thing that it goes through him. Jesus, I think, did really well to hold Romero off and, and also not commit a foul. You know, goalkeepers are so protected in those situations. Any boot vaguely mm. near Hugo Lloris's body is going to cause problems, but he managed to sort of, you know, hold off the defender, skip around the goalkeeper, poke it in, and uh, a big goal for him in a his first North London derby, which is, you know, kind of sets the seal on a fantastic start to his Arsenal career. Yeah, I had sort of tipped him for a hat-trick, but just one will do, I suppose. Um, yeah. And I think as well, you know, it's interesting watching Spurs. I think their goalkeeper, I said this to you in the, pub after yeah. the game but I think he's a bit of a problem for them there's some good graphics I saw Kai Kainak on Football London just about the nature of his kicking how deep he plays it, it does inhibit them and it meant they kept giving the ball back to us time after time um, they gave him a new two-year deal I think in the summer so yeah, right. may it continue well I mean at one point in the first half I was sitting just above the uh, Tottenham bench and Conte went absolutely crazy at one goal kick routine or one thing that, you know, maybe gave the ball away. So, right. um, yeah, I do think he is, he's a bit of an issue. Well, for long may he last. I would yeah. say give him a seven and a half year deal on top of the two years. He's uh, the club captain. So, yeah, yeah he, all being well, he should be there a while. <laughs> uh, but like you say, I think the, the timing of that goal early in the second half was really important. Really important. Um, you know, just sort of reasserted our dominance over them in terms of how we were playing, who was on top, who was making the most chances, who was trying to actually win the game. Um, and we were the only team actually trying to to win the game in a proactive manner anyway. Uh, let's put it like that. Yeah, and I was pleased for Jesus as well. I mean, I wondered mm. how much of a motivation it was for the likes of Jesus, Martinelli, maybe Gabriel as well, that... They were up against someone like Richarlison, who was part of the last Brazil squad, and they weren't. I think particularly for the attacking players, they would have wanted to outshine him. Richarlison seems to have a bit of an issue or something with Martinelli. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, That was evident a couple of times that you could see in the stadium. You know, after the sending off, he went fucking crackers. And there was another moment or two where he was like, I can't remember whether he was complaining about Martinelli being fouled or fouling someone or whatever it was, but you can see that there's something there between those two, whether it's there and uh, Gabrielle as well. Uh, a couple of times um, mm -hmm. there was something going on because the ref had a good word with the two of them at one point, didn't he? Whether it was just before the break or just after the break, I'm not there's sure. There's no love lost. Let's no, say 
no, uh, no, no. between those players. And uh, yeah, I, I actually thought Jesus and Martinelli were both very, very good. Jesus could have made it 3-1 really. And yeah. I suspect might well have done had he not been injured uh, a few moments before. Do you remember that one? I do, yeah. he'd. Um, I think he went down looking for a penalty, which yeah. looked like a penalty from where I was sitting. Um, I, don't, I haven't seen a proper replay to see if there's sufficient contact or anything like that. It looks maybe like it would have been a bit soft, but... Um, it was checked, apparently, but yeah, you know, it's well, Arsenal, so... Exactly, exactly. That doesn't say anything. But whether then... He hurt himself uh, at that point. Was it at that point where he hurt himself? I think so. I think it was. He picked himself up and the move continued. It ended with Ben White actually overlapping and yeah, playing a really cross. nice cross. And he headed wide. Yeah, he could have He could have uh, made that 3-1. And there was another headed chance, actually, which was almost identical to the Brentford goal. Grant yeah, Schechter yeah, yeah. With a clip pass. I actually think Jesus' header on this occasion... Shows how quite how good his header was against Brentford. Yeah, it I agree. So simple. I agree. Yeah, he he didn't get the the power on the header no. yesterday. Whereas um, I I think there was probably a little more pace on the ball um, for Brentford. He was a bit closer to goal, but like you say, it was one of those where the neck muscles really came into it when he scored against Brentford. He didn't quite get the power uh, in the header, and then they got a red card. Yeah. Um, to my surprise, in real time, I have to say, I mean. I saw what looked like a, you know, a bit of a cynical challenge on Martinelli. But when the red came out, uh, I was delighted, but I hadn't anticipated it. I hadn't either, but I did think when I watched it in real time that he'd gone in with this with studs. And when I was watching match of the day, uh, the commentator was it Jonathan Pierce was talking about, oh, it's a bit mistimed, but it wasn't mistimed. That was not a mistimed tackle. It wasn't an attempt to get the ball. You know, Martinelli was going back towards his own goal, for goodness sake. He wasn't trying to get the ball and he was a bit late. And, you know, that can happen. We've seen that happen where there is, you know, a genuine attempt to try and win the ball, but you're a little bit late or you mistime it, misjudge it, whatever it is. And you can go with your studs into, uh, I think Aubameyang um, got sent off against Crystal Palace maybe a couple yeah. of seasons ago. It was exactly that kind of thing where he's genuinely trying to get the ball. He doesn't get it. He's late, studs in, and, you know, with VAR, it's always going to be a red card. But this was not any attempt to get the ball. He just kicked him. He just, like, put his studs into the side of his leg quite high up. Could have really hurt him, I think. Um, and I think that's a definite red card. Yeah, having seen it back, I think it was the right decision. Mm. I thought, weirdly, I thought it was just a, a very lazy challenge. Like, he almost doesn't commit properly to actually making a tackle. He but just it's, sort of, it's the wrong foot. He's doing it with his wrong yeah. foot. He's not even trying to get, you know, he's a right back and it's actually his left leg, his left foot that goes into Martinelli. Like if he was trying to win the ball, he'd be trying to hook around with his right foot. Um, so mm. it was just a really weird thing to do. I think, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that he went to, you know, do the Achilles. I think he just sort of hung his leg out to just sort of have, make a passable effort at defending and caught Martinelli, you know, badly. So mm. quite pleasing, really, to see that given as a red, because it feels like one that maybe could be a red, but isn't often given. Um, yeah, and I think they get away with a lot of shit. They get away with a lot um, yeah. and often have against us. And we've been very harshly punished at times. You know, when you think about 
again last season the penalty the Rob Holding red card which you know I'm not going to argue about the second yellow but maybe the first yellow um, you know given it was a, a bit of a battle between himself and Son was a, was a bit harsh so it's about time they got some and Harry Kane gets away with a lot and has got away with a lot so maybe it's just like um, an accumulation of country that's finally caught up with them sure country karma yeah exactly so we scored pretty quickly after the after the card. Yeah. Um, was it before or after he made all the changes, though? Because at one point, I think it was after he made the changes. It was 3-1 when he made the changes. At one point, he was going to um, make five subs because he had five subs on the uh, on the touchline. Yeah, it was. he was set to become the first Premier League manager to do it, I think. Um, Someone said Solskjaer did it, maybe. I can't oh, really? remember. Yeah. Perhaps. It was just the four in the end. Just the four. But before that, we scored a, a very good goal. Thomas Partey involved again, um, combined with Granit Xhaka, Gabriel Martinelli, took a couple of defenders with him, and it just set up beautifully. The momentum of Martinelli's shift to the right allowed Xhaka to shift the ball uh, to the left and, and get it out from under his feet and, and fire it in. And... You know, with them down to 10 men, I felt quite relaxed at that point. Yeah, and it's strange to say this, but when that ball dropped to Shaka inside the penalty box, I really had confidence that he would finish it. Mm. Um, I guess he strikes the ball very well, you know, and we're just not used to seeing him that high up the pitch or in that position. In those areas, yeah. I mean, uh, what a season he's having. Yeah, and I, it was an interesting game because I thought in the first half uh, he was maybe less influential than he sometimes is because it wasn't really a midfield game. You know, Spurs mm. don't really play midfield. It's not really a thing they do. Um, and so there was almost less requirement of him. But I thought in the second half, he really grew into it. And yeah, the amount of times he sort of provided a threat in the final third was quite amazing. But a really good finish and a really nice moment, I think, to have yeah. Again, that our- celebration in front of the North Bank. Yeah, Arteta went mental as well on the sideline again. He just <laughs> went, he went crazy. And there's brilliant pictures as well, isn't there, of like Shaka running across to the to the fans and Zinchenko's on his knees um, on the TV coverage. It's a great, um, great picture. But, um, you know, Shaka has as many goals as he has yellow cards this season. So uh, it would be nice if he could <laughs> if he could keep that up or maybe, you know, get more goals than yellow cards. Um, but look, Yeah, keep one of those up. That would be nice. It surely um, would. And yeah, and then the subs came. And to be honest, that was, I mean, I saw that as Conte sort of conceding the game. Damage uh, limitation. That's all that was. It was complete damage limitation. Um, he took off Richarlison, who got a very, very good reception from the Arsenal fans who really appreciate what a nice person he is. Um, <laughs> not quite. Son came off, obviously. Again, a very warm reception for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Um, Charleston got more pelters than Son, that's for sure. Well, that's saying something. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, it's- and I, I liked Arteta's subs, actually. I thought it was quite smart management to, well, A, protect, you know, a couple of players like Odegaard, Partey, um, Zinchenko, but also mm. to involve some of that wider core group in a big significant moment of the season, I think was a a smart move from the manager. I agree. I mean, they made sense anyway on just on paper, Partey just back from 
um, well, not just back, but like he's been uh, an injury worry because he didn't play for Ghana. He'd been out for a few weeks before that. Zinchenko didn't play for Ukraine. So, you know, this is, I think, part of how we manage this month. The month of October is like, how do we manage nine games in 30 days? Part of it is you're going to have to you're going to have to give some guys uh, a rest in games themselves, not just between games. So mm-hmm. those substitutes, Tierney for Zinchenko made sense. Sambi for uh, Partey made sense. Um, I'm just trying to think what other subs we had. Um, Vieira came on. Vieira. Ketia came on. Uh, Tommy Asu as well. Tommy Asu, yeah. I mean, I was watching Gabriel Jesus afterwards. Um, and he seemed to be moving quite strangely on the on the pitch i don't know if he was just sort of messing around a little bit because he was having a laugh with one of the coaching staff or physios or something like that but he wasn't moving in a way that filled me with a great deal of confidence um so hopefully he's okay for he's okay for uh, for next weekend um i mean was there anything else that we he really need booked, to talk about no he didn't get booked yeah that's good um, um no can, i mean there isn't can, really a, yeah. a great deal i mean i it was just a but well, they threw in the towel, didn't they? They threw in the towel. Yeah, they really did at that point in time. And Kieran Tierney almost put the seal on it with a, a long-range <laughs> strike from about 25 yards. Yeah. Uh, when he's doing that, you know, things are going pretty well. There was a very funny moment right in front of me, which I don't know if the cameras would have caught, which is when Shaka was down by the left corner flag and he won a throw-in by sort of booting it off Romero. Yeah, I remember and- that. As Romero walked away, Shaka, like Shaka's name was being sung by the fans in the corner, and he just pointed at Romero, looked to the fans, and stuck his tongue out <laughs> as if to be like, "Ah, got him!" And uh, it was really funny. And again, sort of a indicative of the rapport he's built against the odds now. With yeah, sports. I also enjoyed Ben White applauding the about seven Tottenham fans that were left in the ground when he had to go off and walk all the way around the ground. Uh, all the I think way he over. gave them the three. Oh, did, is that what well. it was? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I love and he, that. Credits Ben White. I don't know if you've seen, but there was also a moment in the first half where he just completely needlessly bumped Harry Kane off the ball. Um, it was in our box. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> high risk strategy from Ben White, especially he, against Spurs. But yeah. Listen, some he people, lives to fight another day. Some people need that. Um, it's a big win, though, isn't it? This because it's not just a derby. This, you know, they would have gone ahead of us had they won. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't allow that to happen uh, on any circumstances. But, you know, this season in particular, when we've started so well and the question mark is like, well, you haven't played anyone good yet. Or apart from Manchester United, who <laughs> I'm looking at what happened today and thinking, how the fuck uh, did we lose that game? But there you go. That's football for you. Strange things have happened. Um, they spursed us. Yeah. But to win the derby against, uh, again, you could say we still haven't played anyone good. It's only Tottenham, lads. It's Tottenham, et cetera, et cetera. But the derby is its own thing, its own beast, and, and its own importance and its own meaning but in the context of this season, to win that game as convincingly as we did, and I agree with you, by the way, um, I think we were far more dominant than we've been uh, given credit for. And I think their their threat has been overblown. 
really. Um, yeah, Ramsdale right. didn't have anything to do. Aaron Ramsdale literally had nothing to do apart from a couple of corners, set pieces, whatever it was, had to be, you know, organized for that. But he didn't have a save to make. No. After I, that, you know, so don't talk to me about the final pass. Final pass doesn't matter if you're not getting shots away. So uh, yeah. I just think we, we, we said a lot about where we are and where we're going and, you know, what we still have to do. But after losing to Manchester United... And we've come back and we've beaten uh, Brentford and now we've won the derby and we're sitting top of the table, as you say. It's the kind of result and the kind of performance that will and should make people sit up and take a bit more notice. And it sets up a fantastic game next weekend. Arsenal host Liverpool, who dropped points again, mm. home to Brighton. Um, I sort of can't believe I'm saying this, but we're 11 points ahead of Liverpool right now. Wow. Um, they have a game in hand, but nonetheless, it's quite the gap. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, for all the talk of being top and things like that, I, I am looking at the likes of Liverpool and United and just trying to keep those gaps, Chelsea too, as wide as possible. Yeah. Uh, because I think that's really the, the big challenge for us this season. Can we finish ahead of a clutch of those teams and ensure we get Champions League football back at Arsenal? Um I mean, what else can we say about this? I mean, this was my first game of the season. Mm -hmm. And basically what you've been saying, what everybody has been saying about the atmosphere is absolutely spot on. It's um, it's a lot of fun, you know, to be in the ground when everybody's... I mean, the guy behind me, though, I wrote about him in the blog. I read that, yeah. He was just sitting there and like after th after the third goal, I didn't notice what happened after the penalty because I was just sitting staring ahead in the in the distance because I knew what was going to happen. So I didn't turn around. And I don't think he jumped up and did anything, but he was clearly a Spurs fan who got, an, uh, got a ticket off someone and was just trying not to react. But in not reacting... He sort of outed himself uh, pretty clearly, so that was good. Uh, I'm sure that I guy's can't not listening. Many things worse than watching a North London derby in the opposite stadium. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. With the wrong fans, I, I, I can't see how that's worth it. But yeah. even if it goes your way, you can't really revel in it like you might wish to. Um, no, that's true. That's true. Anyway, look, takes all sorts, you know. But the the singing was amazing. the The atmosphere was amazing in the ground at both ends. Um, you know, the Ashburton army were really good again, but the, the, the singing section where you guys are was really loud. Everybody was getting involved. And like, I took a video maybe five minutes after the final whistle and the stadium's about three quarters full Yeah, with people just hanging around, soaking up the atmosphere. Um, DJ played an absolute blinder. It has to be said post game, bit of Coolio at halftime as well. <laughs> Love that. And, uh, you know, I think all of that and, of course, winning and people are in a good mood. Um, it's it's you can feel it. It's palpable. What's going on is palpable. You can you can I don't know you if you could bottle it, you could sell it for millions, you know. Yeah. And I guess, you know, that's reflected in the fact that when Arsenal did concede the equaliser, there wasn't any kind of great sense of despondency. Mm. Um, support was just as vocal and just as positive. So, yeah, it was a really fantastic afternoon and it couldn't really have gone much better. 3-1, same scoreline as this fixture last season, was it? Yeah, That's right, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. They got um, a late goal, didn't they? We were 3-0 and they got a late goal, so it was slightly different in terms of the yeah. But I seem context. to recall they, they exerted a bit of pressure in that one in the last 10 minutes. You know, there was the Son shot that 
uh, was tipped onto the bar, the deflected shot. And there was a slight sort of sense of, oh, we, we rocked a bit. Whereas I think in large part due to the sending off, um, from when we were 3-1 up, it was really cruise control for us. Yeah, it was. And them throwing in the towel, waving the white flag of surrender, basically with their substitutions and everything else, um, was jolly pleasant. I haven't seen any um, Antonio Conte reaction to it. What did he have to say or have you watched? Uh, I think he said the final ball wasn't good enough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. But yeah, listen, I mean, I said I'd rather watch Arsenal. I, I can't emphasize that enough really i mean i do think this spurs team the center halves romero is a good player but the other two are, are cloggers to be honest with you um a lot of long ball a lot of un- uninventive unimaginative stuff mm. they obviously have a fantastic front line but if they don't you know over deliver then spurs come a cropper and you know, they've, they, you speak to their fans and they'll say, yeah, we've won a lot of games, but we've not played well for long periods of games. And what I find encouraging about Arsenal is you look at the eight matches they've played, I think you can make a case that they've dominated or been on the team on top in every single one. You know, even the one they lost at Old Trafford, mm. um, they took the game to United. And uh, yeah, eight games in, I feel very, very happy about where we are. I'm also mindful that eight games in a 38-league season, it still isn't that much. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, like, you you know, you, you you can only do what you need to do. You've got to start somewhere. Um, yeah. I, I get it. I, I've, I understand why, like, sometimes we feel like we need to qualify things because we've, you know, things have not gone well sometimes. We've had little periods where we've gone well. But I enjoyed the bit towards the end of the uh, the game. It was in injury time. I think the ball came across to Vieira. Maybe he could have taken a shot. He might try to play a pass. Could have been to Martinelli. I can't remember what it was. But it was a good chance to score a fourth goal. And Mikel Arteta went absolutely mad. Like he went, fuck, he was fuming. He was running up and down. He was, what the fuck? Like, and that really says something about the standards that he's trying to implement at this football club, right? Like, even though it's 3-1, even though everyone knows we're going to win, he wants more. Mm-hmm. He wants more, wants us to be more clinical. Even if Tottenham get battered everywhere they go, he wants us to batter them a little bit more. Double dip batter. You know, he. I mean, I, I really like that. I was watching that going, fucking fair play. You know, because he's he's feeling every minute of it. Like, he wants a 3-1 win. I'm sure he's delighted with it. 4-1 win, give me that if you've got it. 5-1, you know. So it's, it's, it's encouraging to me anyway that even in the circumstances that we were in, where it was obvious we were going to win the game, he was still demanding more of his players and looking for greater ruthlessness. And I hope, you know, in future games you see that. Absolutely. And, and just, you know, we're, we're always talking about the context of our season and where we might finish and what this might do to the league table, or what it means for the next game. The derby is a thing unto itself and you win the derby and that's one of the high points of your season. And we did that on Saturday and uh, it will be a very positive memory whatever happens between now and May. And it it, mm. it kind of deserves to be judged on its own merits. You know, it's obviously not a cup final, but it has something of that quality to it. It is almost a one-off 
event that you want to win just for its own merit. And Arsenal did that quite emphatically. They certainly did. And it was indeed a great day. We will be back with your questions and more in part two right after this. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer the questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arseblog. Also on the Arseblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arseblog member on Patreon. Before I go into the questions, I just want to say uh, hello. And it was great to meet so many people over the weekend. Some old friends that we haven't seen for quite a while and lo- lots of new people as well. Um, in the various places that we were. So hello to all of you, Uh, too many of you to mention, but it's always amazing. It is amazing to meet people um, when you go over for a game and when they talk about the podcast and talk about the blog or whatever it is, it's, uh, it's great. I kind of, it's reinvigorating in a way, not that I'm sort of uh, uninvigorated, but I'm more invigorated after I meet people and and everything else. So. um, Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, Although it does mean that when I'm trying to do my post-match video, I have people shouting at me and, you know, trying to get in the background, which is, which is fun. <laughs> well, you're going to have to wait till you go home to do them now. You're you're sort of doing them in a man-on-the-street fashion now, you see. Yeah, so you've I'm trying to kind of bring a flavour of the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? But that's the consequence. You know, <laughs> you've got lots of extras in the background and some of them, they go rogue. You know how it is. They can't be relied upon. That's true. Um... Cool. Do you want to go first with the question? Do I want to go first? Sure. Why not? Um, Big Harrow ninety nine on the Discord says, "Why does Kane continually get away with it? Yesterday was a dirty kick stomp at Gabriella, no mention anywhere. Nothing from the ref or the commentators. But watch it again. It's there. Dirty fucker is what he says. I think it's. I think it's his nationality. I think mm-hmm. it's his." status with the national team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's probably the way his media profile is managed and the perception of him as a player. But it is insane 
I mean, the amount of stuff he gets away with is completely ludicrous. Uh, I don't think it's that we're specifically attuned to it as Arsenal fans. I genuinely think it's it's just a bit of a travesty that he's allowed to to go around the pitch seemingly doing pretty much whatever he wants. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right about the nationality. And, you know, uh, listeners of a certain vintage will remember Alan Shearer. I, was he England captain when he kicked Neil Lennon in the head? I'm not sure. Yeah. It certainly was England's leading striker, yeah. whether or not he was the captain already. But I'm not quite sure if he was. But that was one of those where, had it been a foreign ruffian, there probably would have been... I like. I think it would have been different if Neil Lennon had kicked Alan Shearer in the head. I think the oh, the coverage would have been, so. yeah. I think um, there's a, an element of that with with Harry Kane. He's sort of England's uh, leading goal scorer. He's probably the most important player in terms of um, scoring goals for England. So nobody wants to upset him. And uh, yeah, I don't know how he gets away with. It. I don't know how more isn't made of some of the um, some of the the stuff he does. The the thing on Gabrielle was completely unnecessary. He didn't need to do that. He went in with his knee towards his head, although I did enjoy the the way Gabriel reacted and got the crowd really pumped up after that, if you remember. Yeah, he was very wound up, Gabriel. Whether, mm. that, whether that's entirely a good thing, I'm not sure. But I do wonder as well with Kane, is there another element, just purely sort of thinking off the top of my head, like is there a case that strikers get away with things that other players in other positions might not you know is there a kind of acceptance that tackling and challenging is not mm. their forte and a referee's more forgiving of that i don't know maybe yeah strikers challenge you hear people talk about that but uh yeah yeah he's cynical kane he knows precisely what he's doing all the time um well that's i think i i would hesitate to praise him but i guess he is quite clever with what he does. And he seems to sort of know where the loopholes within the laws are there to be exploited a little Kinda. bit. Kind of. Like, he he doesn't ever do anything so egregious that, you know, he could be hauled over the coals for it. Like, even the one no, with Gabriel, no. he just sort of left his knee in there a little bit and he could, oh, I was just a bit clumsy. I was falling over. But he knew fine well what he was doing. Um, but I suppose in some ways he's he's emboldened or enabled by the fact that he knows he can do these things and not get um not get censured for them so it is what it is hopefully he'll be uh, somebody else's problem next season though that would be nice um that would be very nice mm. so um i thought this was an interesting question from brad dennett on twitter and brad said goodly afternoon from canada gentlemen Having both been at the game, what is something you found interesting watching the team in person that you think may be missed when watching on the couch? Oh, man, there's, there's all kinds of things, aren't there? Little interactions, um, the way that players speak to each other, or the way they react to, to certain things. Like, I thought Gabriel Martinelli had a really, really good game yesterday fantastic mm. game but there was a moment in the second half where he stopped chasing could have been son i can't remember who it was 
And we got it clear in the end. We didn't turn into anything. But had there been a chance for Tottenham, it was because he was watching but not doing his job. I don't know if I would have seen that as clearly on the television, given that it didn't come to anything. Like if it had been a goal, if they got a goal, for example, you'd see the replays and you'd see, um, you know, that thing. But you can watch, uh, you know, all, all those little things where just over the course of 90 minutes, a player might switch off for a few seconds and you can see how how that can impact a game. Um it was a similar similar one actually in the did you watch the highlights of the Brighton Liverpool game? I've actually not seen that. Right. No. So the third Brighton goal after being 2-0 up Liverpool got it back to 3-2. They were ahead and there was a similar kind of situation where Luis Diaz didn't chase back and Trossard got his his hat-trick goal. Um and there was a similar thing there with Martinelli. It's not to be critical, it's just something I noticed in the game, but I, I suppose it's the way that players react to things and talk to each other. And, you know, you mentioned the Ben White thing. They probably didn't have TV cameras on him as he was going around the ground, um, making his way back. Um, Watching the managers is always quite interesting. The way that the set-piece coach comes into the technical area whenever we're dealing with or taking a set-piece, I think is really interesting. I don't know quite why, whether there's some signals or something else. I'm not 100% sure, but that's an interesting thing. That Arteta goes and sits down and the set-piece coach comes out. Well, he didn't always go and sit down, but sometimes he goes and sits down. So, I think that that would be what I would say, the interaction between coaching staff and team. Mm. You know, that's something that's often not captured by the cameras. Um, and you mentioned, you know, Arteta's frustration at a missed chance or, you know, someone's failing to track a runner. I find that fascinating, just sort of seeing... Uh, how he mm. engages with the team. And, you know, when he pulls a player over to have a chat with them, I noticed, you know, a couple with Saka in the first half. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, saw that too. There was one because Perisic had a lot of space out on the left-hand side. Like he loads of space to go down the left. And they actually got the ball over to him pretty quickly. And it could have been the one where I think he flashed a shot wide of the post. Yeah, in the yeah, first half. Wide. He sort of went for the near post. Yeah, didn't he? yeah. but Saka got, dra- I, I think he got dragged in field with a player, he went with the runner, maybe he could have um, stayed a little more central, which would have allowed him to get back quicker. But after Perisic had taken the shot and gone back, Saka and Arteta were chatting on the side. We're chatting and Saka seemed to be saying, well, what am I supposed to do here? And he was giving him some instructions or whatever it was. And I don't think that Perisic had quite that much space again, you know? So Mm -hmm. sort of addressing a little problem in real time and seeing it play out like that is, is quite interesting. Yeah. Very much so. Okie dokie. Let me see if I can find a question here. Uh, We had a load of questions. Uh, There's my voice going. Um, About Tommy Asu and Gabrielle. And I'm just trying to see if I can find one of them, Um, which I can't. So I'll come back to that. And this one comes from Committed on Twitter, who's at MTU254. And he said, I noticed that Shaka and Party celebrated each other's goals with extra relish between themselves. Do you think as seniors in the squad, they rally each other to lead the group? I don't know, but I saw that Shaka was, uh, you know, it was straight over to Partey as soon as he put that one in the top corner. Mm. Um, I'm not sure whether or not they have a particularly strong personal relationship or anything like that. Uh, I, I'm not sure that Partey is a hugely sort of 
demonstrative vocal figure within the group. I think he's someone who, if he's going to lead at all, leads by example, by the quality of his play and his performances. Mm. I don't think that he's a Shaka-like figure within the dressing room. Um, but listen, they are both very important to the team. That much is clear. And, you know, I'm not sure that we achieved the result we did on Saturday without either of them. And, and you know, the the gap when Partey is in the team and when he's out is pretty mm. substantial, isn't it? It is. I thought that was maybe his best game for us. Um, there was a sort of... He was everywhere, but without being manic, if that makes sense. Like his reading of the game was was really good. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe just because they're two guys of around the same age. Yeah. They they have a little bit of a kinship in that sense because it is a pretty young team otherwise. Um, and maybe just because they're both midfielders, you know. Partey scores, Xhaka scores. Um, and I'm sure there's some stuff that goes on in training where, you know, there's a bit of... I'm sure Granite Xhaka down the years has had some ribbing about the amount of goals he scores and doesn't score, you know, part A2 to an extent. So maybe there's a a bit of that to it. I don't know. But it's uh, it's certainly a positive uh, relationship. I'll go back to the other one. Um, yeah, go on. Adrian O'Sullivan, like loads of people have asked this question, so I apologize because I can't read them all out, but just a couple. Adrian O'Sullivan, who's at AOSully1, says, don't want to rain on what was a fantastic performance, but should we be worried about Gabriel? Another error yesterday to go along with a few he's already made this season. Is it worth going uh, with White at centre-back and Tommy Asu at right-back? And Ramji, who's at Sati, Satya Ramji? on Twitter, says, Gabriel has made a few mistakes in the last few games. Now that Tommy Asu is back, do you think we should try the White-Saliba partnership at some stage in the season? Or is it something we shouldn't really be that worried about? Well, I mean, if we're going to talk about Gabriel, I think first we have to talk about William Saliba. It's kind of a remarkable we've got this far into the podcast without talking about yeah, I've got because... a question about him. So <laughs> Okay, <laughs> right. Fine. Well, uh, you know, he, he is Arsenal's in-form centre-half at, at the present point sure. in time. And so inevitably, you know, there's going to be debate and discussion about who should partner him. Gabriel is certainly a more rash, I would say maybe more emotional player than yes. Saliba. Yeah. Um, you know, we saw that a bit of that yesterday. He gets drawn into situations and he's fiery. And he plays on the edge and it means that he can make mistakes and he can pick up cards. Whereas Saliba's just, you know, ice in his veins. So <laughs> cool, so cold in the way he seems to play. Um, but to be honest, maybe that's a good balance. You know, maybe it's not bad to have a bit of fire and a bit of ice. Uh, I, I still think that Gabriel is a really important part of this team. I think his left-footedness does lend us something in build-up. Uh, I think the physical dimension he brings to the team is really valuable. The threat he can provide in the opponent's box. I'm curious to see what a, a White and Saliba partnership would look like, but I'm not at all in a position where I'm, you know, close to giving up on Gabriel or anything like mm. it. I mean, the age he is, he's 24 now. I think the next two years will be pretty crucial in his trajectory and in his development. And I think he's got the potential to iron out some of these mistakes. But I think he's always going to be a guy who plays with that emotion and who takes maybe more risks than some other centre-halves. And that's just sort of the trade-off, I guess, you 
except when you select him. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think it wasn't a great challenge for the uh, for the penalty, but a lot went wrong before that, as we talked about. And I guess he felt like he had to do something in the box because uh, if he didn't, maybe Richarlison gets a shot away and scores a goal anyway, you know? Um, so, look, I, I do think this is an interesting thing because, you know, Tommy Asu, people think about, well, if we bring Tommy Asu in, he's going to play it right back and Ben White will move into uh, the center of defense and will shift Saliba to left center half, I guess. That's the way it would work. Um, I don't I don't know necessarily why I make that assumption, um, just based on the fact that Ben White has played right center half and Saliba's um, played left center half before at times in his career. But mm. Tommy Asu is a left center half, left-sided center half for Japan. Yeah. And it might be interesting to consider him in the left central defensive role. Like, I I don't really have a big issue with Gabriel either. I think he is going to make a few mistakes here and there, but for the most part, he's very solid. Um, I don't think he's anywhere close to being a problem or anything like that. So... I just think it's interesting the way this is going to play out over the course of this season because there are going to be times where, you know, our defensive roster needs to needs to be tweaked, whether it's injury or fatigue or whatever it might be. I just wonder, like, if, you know, let's say you get to a point where you have to rest Gabriel, do you then bring Tommy Asu at right back, move Saliba across, move Ben White across, or do you just shift one piece and, you know, do Gabriel for Tommy Asu in a particular game? I mean, maybe, maybe we had this question from Jota Degay on Twitter at Jota Degay ninety, and they said, "Do you think Arteta expected to keep this current back four well into October, or do you think White at right back was initially more of a stopgap in his mind? I doubt the plan was for Tommy Asu to be on the bench this long, but maybe performances have kind of forced the manager's yeah, hand." I think that's a I think that's a fair point. I mean, Ben White. I know I've said this before. I said this last week. I'm sure I said it the week before. I think Ben White has been quietly really, really good yeah. this season. I think he's been outstanding. I can't believe he's not in the England team. I mean, it's good for us, but I, I just can't believe a player who's that good at right back and who's that good at centre half isn't in the England squad going into the World Cup. You know, it seems absolutely crazy uh, to me, but... I, I do think it was kind of a stopgap because we, you know, we were easing Tommy Asu back in after um, his injury problems last season. Saliba came in and has played so well, like you, you cannot drop him. You just can't drop him, but you can't drop Ben White either. So the the casualty of that, I suppose, is Tommy Asu at the moment. And that's not something I thought I would say this time last year when he came into the team and was absolutely brilliant. Um, and showed what a really, really smart, intelligent defender he is, and I think he still is. But he is suffering a little bit because he was out with injury and, and the team is doing well. It's The hardest thing in the world is to get back into a winning team if you're on the bench because the manager is reluctant to change too much. And one of the things that has been working very well this season is is Ben White at right back. So if you don't have to change it, I don't know why you would. But this is a long season. This is a long, weird season where 
we don't quite know what's going to happen to the players when they come back from the World Cup and when the World Cup break um, is over for the players who didn't go and who've, you know, not necessarily down tools in the middle of the season, but it's going to have a, f- a physical impact on them as well. So we don't know. And I do think that there are going to be times when you're um, when you're going to have to change and players will get injured and everything else and there'll be chances for people to come in and stake their claim. But, uh, yeah, I don't think it was necessarily his plan. Do you? I don't think he anticipated Saliba being as good as he's been. And, I, and maybe maybe he didn't quite anticipate Ben White being as good as he's been at right back. I mean, I thought he was excellent yesterday. Mm. Um, and, you know, Spurs sat so deep that they it meant Arsenal had a lot of possession in those uh, around the halfway line, you know, and that I think that justified ultimately the selection of Zinchenko. I know defensively he didn't have a perfect game. He actually didn't have his best game on the ball either. No, but but when you you know your opponent is going to give you, um, you know, sixty five percent of the ball, then it makes sense to have people who can really play in those fullback areas. And I think match of the day said Ben White had more touches than any other Arsenal player. Um, so that shows you how important he was. Mm. And he's doing all sorts of things from right back. You know, he had the layoff for the Partey goal, but he's playing penetrative passes into the forwards. He's overlapping as he did for that Jesus-headed chance. He really can do it all, and he's a good defender as well. And he, I think, at the moment, is so good in that position that I'd almost be loath to take him out or loath to move him. I mean, you know, that trio of... Gabriel Saliba and Ben White is the foundation that underpins this Arsenal team ultimately. Uh, and I don't see a good reason as yet to break it up. But inevitably, you know, we will see different combinations. And like you, I'd be curious to see Tommy Asu as a, a left sided centre half because we've barely seen it in his time at Arsenal. Yeah. He does it pretty regularly at international. Here's, I mean, we had a, just a slight follow up question about um, Ben White uh, from yeah. the Discord from Nono Sayogo. Um, who was talking about Ian Wright, match of the day, talking about how good he's been. He said, Arsenal fans have been slowly falling in love with him over the last year, yet non-Arsenal people still don't value him. What is it about his game that is holding people back from understanding how good uh, he really is? Don't know. Because to me, he looks like a top-class footballer. Everything he does is so classy. The way he carries the ball, the way he passes the ball... You know, I, I've, I've said before, he looks like someone who could play in any team in the world. And I really believe that. Like, I think you could put him in that Man City back four and he would look right at home. Um, so I don't know. I think there are a couple of things that I can imagine might count against him. One is uh, unfair conclusions drawn after a difficult Premier League debut that are still hanging around mm. more than 12 months on. Uh, and the other might be, you know, I wonder if some of his comments about, you know, I don't watch football, things like that. Is that something yeah. that, <laughs> yeah. you know, fans of other teams or the international setup even might hold against him? I don't know. I can only speculate, but I mm. can't make sense of it on, for, on a performance level. No, me neither. Me neither. Um, I do think that the the hard time he got over the Brentford game last season has coloured people's view of him. People who don't watch him as regularly as we watch him. Mm. So, 
but he can play. I mean, he can play right back. He can play centre half. I've seen him play in a three. I've seen him play on the left of a three. He's played holding midfield. I mean, are you honestly telling me Connor Cody's a better footballer than mm. Ben White? I'm just not having it. No, I, I never said that. I didn't. Uh, no, no, I'm I sorry. Know, I know. I know. <laughs> you but like, well, you know, yeah. it, 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 from an England perspective, sure. and I'm sure you couldn't care less about this, but Harry Maguire's still getting picked, still making mistakes. Um, yeah, I don't, I just don't get it. Maybe Ben White is happy of some time away from football. I, don't, I genuinely don't know. You know, more time on the sunbed for him. Do you think his I mean, image? I'm, do you I'm, think his image plays into it at all? I mean, he's uh, possibly. You know, I, I wonder if he's seen. I and mean, what we don't know is what he's like to work with. We we don't know what he's like on the training ground. You know, I'm I'm saying Cody's not as good a footballer, but he's being selected because of well, in large part because of what he brings to the group, the type of character he is. I think the same is probably true of Maguire because you certainly can't justify selection based on form. What does Harry Maguire bring to anything? Well, he's just a he's big, the Manchester United captain, so big, you know, gigantic mustafi. That's all he is—a big meaty mustafi. Um, you know, I think I, I look. I don't know what Ben White is like on the training ground, but I do know that, like, if you were to. If you were to say, if someone was to ask you, Granite Xhaka aside, like which player do you think Mikel Arteta has like almost 100% trust in? There's probably, you know, a few of them. Xhaka would be one. Odegaard would be another. I would say Ben White is right near the top of that list as well. Yeah. Jesus. Jesus, yep, you know. Yeah, yeah. Saka, White. Mm. You know, they're the core. White plays. Like Saka, he plays. If he's available, he plays. Mm -hmm. Doesn't really matter where to Arteta, I don't think. Yeah. He's in his best team. Yeah. And that tells Uh, you how he trains and how he is as a professional. Because you don't get that from Arteta if you're part-timer or whatever. Yeah, it is an odd one because he, he went to the Euros, didn't he? And didn't feature. He was sort of a late call up. Um, and then he's just barely had a look in since then. So I don't know. what For whatever reason, the England manager doesn't fancy him. But if England carry on like they've been playing, uh, I suspect Gareth Southgate won't be the manager. For it's, it seems it's very strange to me that, you know, a, a manager who l- seems to like defenders more than any other kind of player. Right backs. Yeah, right backs in particular isn't uh, into a really good defender. Quite strange. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I, you know, White getting in the England team at right back is probably a long shot. It's the, you know, it is a comically overstacked position for England where they've got, you know, Reese James and Carl mm. Walker and Trent Alexander-Arnold. But I think at centre-half, he should absolutely be in that squad. But well, it's a good thing for Arsenal if he's not, in all seriousness. It is a good thing. Yeah. And it's just a shame if he wants to be in there. Um, yeah, so uh, what about this one? Because we've got two games this week, uh-huh. lest we forget. An apnea boy on Twitter said, Goodly evening. With the game against Liverpool in mind, who from Saturday starting 11 will have to start on Thursday too? Um... Right, so let's try and pick a team. So if okay. you play Turner and goal, yeah, 
Tomiyasu uh, right back, Tierney holding Tierney at left back, holding at centre half. You've got a centre half that might need to play, so it could be Gabriel. Um, so there's one. Lukonga, Lukonga for Partey, Vieira, and another midfielder. There's there's a gap as well. Potential, yeah, that you're going to have to play Shaka. Um, someone. Your front three can be Nelson, Nketiah, and Marquinhos. Yeah. So you've got two, throw, of course, two positions. And it would depend, I guess, on whether Mikel Arteta sees someone like, I don't know, Matt Smith. Would he be ready to, to play a game in central midfield? I think he I think he could. He's played plenty of league football, you know, mm. in his loan spells. Um but I don't see that happening. I think he'll go with seniority, at least from the start. So, I, yeah, I wonder if we might see... Jack, Shaka did two two games away in the interlull as well. Yeah. Like, I know he's a very... Robust. Touch wood, very robust and available all player. all the wood that is available to you, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, you also have to bear in mind that he is heading towards 30 and uh you know you've got to you got to take care of him a bit is he 30 already i think he could be close if not um yes turned 30 on the 27th of september that's the day after my birthday so there you go so yeah i think uh there's two possible spots aren't there mm. where he might he might be tempted to drop a senior player in um but yeah you'd love to give those guys a rest as well wouldn't you Mm. I'm just looking at uh, what we did in Zurich. We played Shaka mm. and Gabriel. So we also played Martinelli in that one, but I don't think we should be doing that this week. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. We've got to, uh, you know, make sure that we're ready for Liverpool. Um, but maybe it's sort of like a game share thing where, you know, you play Gabriel for an hour and you can put somebody else on for the last half an hour just to make sure that they're not completely... The fact that it's a home as well might lend itself to Mikel Arteta taking a, not a chance, but but just being a bit more willing to play somebody from the youth system, from the academy. Yeah. Um, Matt Smith would look the most sensible one, I think, in terms of the experience he has. Um, FA Cup winner Matt Smith? You know. An FA Cup winner, no less. But, you know, he's 21. He he was captain, I think, of the under-18s or under-23s at mm. some point. You know, he's a bit, a bit of a leadership figure within the academy. He's quite a tidy footballer as well. Um, had loan spells with Swindon, Charlton Athletic, played 43 games for Doncaster last season. Um, so he would be the closest. And why not? You know, why not? Yeah, if it's not going well, you can make a change. Exactly, exactly. Um, Richard Kirk asks a question about William Saliba's contract, about how long before we start to panic about the lack of a Saliba contract. Now, next week, during the January transfer window, and we, we, we had a little conversation about this after the game, didn't we, in the pub, that I think I said, I cannot remember a 21-year-old player with a stronger negotiating position with a football club than William Saliba when it comes to a new contract. Mm. Because, look, 
he's so good. He's so um, captured the hearts and minds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, he's verging on. I don't want to use the word iconic, but uh, you know, he's he's become really, really important to this team very, very quickly. Like yeah. I thought some of his defending on Saturday was just unbelievable for a guy of 21. You know, there was one he got back, he chased back and, um, you know, snuffed out a chance that Tottenham might have had down the right in the first half. Uh, Kane really didn't get anything out of him all game. I thought his reading of the game was really, really good. And when you're playing a team that wants to hit you on the break and wants to transition, having a player like that who can read the game and see the danger and, you know, move into position is is just so crucial. I thought he was he was really, really good again. Um, he could go to Arsenal and ask for the crown jewels in metaphorical terms. I mean, he can ask for plenty, can't he? I think so, because you've got to think, what's he worth on the open market? What do Arsenal stand to lose if they don't keep him? Mm. He's going to go to a World Cup, most likely. Uh, this year, probably going to play in a World Cup. That'll only increase his, his profile, increase his value. Yeah, it's a deal Arsenal need to get done. But you can't really blame the Saliba camp if they choose to no. bide their time a bit, right? No, Because no. his stock is rising week by week. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're thinking about it from a career management perspective, we're looking at it in one way, right? We're Arsenal fans. We want him to sign. We're desperate for him to sign a new contract. And I don't think in any way, shape or form, you could say that he is um, he's unhappy at Arsenal. He looks to be very happy. He looks to be well integrated. He's playing well. Teammates love him. Fans love him. All of that kind of stuff. You know, it's all there. But at the same time, if you're managing the career of a young player and if you're advising them, you would say, just keep playing, you know, keep performing. And when we go to talk to Arsenal about a new contract, we can do so on the basis of a season of, let's say, a season of very good performances and maybe a couple of scary bits of interest from elsewhere which, you know, is part and parcel of the process when you're negotiating a new contract, right? It's like, well, they're offering a bit more than that. And they, you know, so from that, I think that's something we're going to have to contend with as Arsenal fans, that the way this is going to play out is probably not going to be as simple as we would like. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Um, and it may take more time than we would like, but it's a massive priority for Arsenal. Um has to be because these performances. I thought he was just imperious at times yesterday. Mm. I mean, the compo the level of composure in one so young is extraordinary. And I thought, you know, on the English coverage, they had Cesc Fabregas in the studio, and he was talking in glowing terms about Saliba. <laughs> what did he say? He, he said he could be Arsenal's starting centre back for the next fifteen to twenty years. <laughs> So we look forward to a... I don't know how long we should make this contract. We could have a 41-year-old William Saliba uh, <laughs> playing in the Premier League. But uh, I, I know what he means, though. He's just, yeah, yeah. you know, he, he's a sensational talent. They saw it, to be fair, when he was a teenager. They spent a lot of money to recruit him at that age with the hope he would continue developing as he has. Um, 
he's here now and mm. he needs to stay because he has been, I think, you know, as important as anybody in the improvement in Arsenal this season. No, I agree. I agree. He's been uh, he's been brilliant, and um, you know, for a player like for a central defender of twenty one to be doing what he's doing is not normal. No, it's not, not normal. But then it's not normal to be playing at the highest level of French football at seventeen, and he was doing that. You know, mm. so he's always been ahead of his contemporaries. Um, and he looks like he's just loving it. But he's so he's so effortlessly cool. I mean, even as he was leaving the pitch yesterday, he was being serenaded with the Saliva song. DJ stuck it on, you know, uh, after after the Granite Shaka song. But he just kind of, he did acknowledge it. But it's not like he was out there sort of soaking it up and, you know, cuddling mm. everybody. He just kind of acknowledged it with a raise of the arm, strode off down the tunnel, purposeful, yeah, he he's a very, very good footballer and he very much knows it. And I think it's partly what makes him so good. Yeah. What a man. What a man. Someone um, should write a song with that title. <laughs> what about this question um, from the Discord? I thought this was interesting. It's either from Greg Justum or Greg Just Ham. Don't know. I don't know either. But Greg says... A lot of focus has been on our schedule over the next month. But if you look at our rivals, let's pretend our rivals are beyond just Man City here. They have really tough periods with the Champions League games coming just as often as our Europa League games. Mm. Am I the only one who sees this next month as advantageous for us versus the other top sides? We will rest most key players while they may have to play players like Kane, Haaland, Salah, etc. every few days. That's a good point. That's a good yeah. point. Like I don't think I don't think you can make ten or eleven changes for a Champions League game. Well certainly not most of them. No. The same way you can with the Europa League. Like Europa League gives you a chance to, you know, again with all due respect to the opposition, to rotate fairly substantially. Mm -hmm. Um and that was always, you know, the thing about the Champions League is like it's not really the Thursday Sunday schedule um, that people talk about with the Europa League. That's the issue. It's when you get into the Champions League is you've got to play your first team more often. You've got to mm. play more of your first team players more often. I suppose the thing is they they're probably a bit more used to it. Um, but yeah, maybe it is an advantage, particularly if um, are Liverpool playing midweek. Uh, I think they probably are. Yeah, just see. look, Liverpool fixtures. Uh, they will be. They're playing Rangers. Okay, so they now. could rotate quite heavily for that one, I would say. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, they could. Um, yeah. But, but say, say like Chelsea, for example. You know, Chelsea in this period over the next month or so will have two Champions League ties against Milan, two, uh, one against Red Bull Salzburg, um, you know, They've got fixtures against Brentford away, United they play. So there's a lot of juggling to be done. Mm. Um, you know, Tottenham's fixtures, they've got Champions League games against Eintracht Frankfurt and Sporting. Okay, look, maybe they're not the toughest teams you can face, Marseille as well. But it's the Champions League, right? They have to treat it very, very seriously and they probably don't have quite the same depth as some of the other sides. In the Premier League, 
They play Newcastle. They've got uh, they've a trip, uh, a game against Liverpool in early November. Like, our fixture list does look daunting, don't get me wrong, but I think the question raises an interesting point. Yeah. I think it's going to be tricky for a lot of these teams. That's true. That's true. And, uh, you know, hopefully they find it extremely hard going. And so drop we are going to win the league. <laughs> See, look at United's fixture list. I mean, yes, they've got the only Europa League games against Ammonia. I don't even know who. Ammonia? Ammonia? Really? Um, and Real Sociedad. But then they've got league games away to Everton, at home to Newcastle, home to Spurs, away to Chelsea, home to West Ham. I mean, that is a tough run of games. Mm. So let's see. Let's see. I, I think I think we shouldn't be too despondent. I think it's a tough test for all these teams, but we have lost a couple, right? We've mm. lost El Nenny in midfield. We've lost Smith Rowe. Those are pretty substantial blows in terms of our depth to navigate this. Ammonia are fourth in the Cypriot First Division and are managed apparently by Neil Lennon. Wow. So maybe Neil Lennon can kick... Marcus Rashford in the head or something. I don't know. Sure, sure, sure. That'd give us a, a bit of Blated a, revenge against uh, the English. Here is a question from James Doherty, who's at the underscore X underscore Tuft, uh, the Tufty man. He said, do you think that the Xhaka redemption arc, about which we had many, many questions as well, but I think we discussed it um, in general a bit last week or maybe the week before, but he said, do you think the Shaka redemption arc and the positivity around him, even outside of Arsenal fans, will make him less susceptible to those if that was Granite Shaka cards? Uh, honestly, no. I think that <laughs> that's so entrenched now in perception of him that I, I don't think he's ever going to quite shake that. Um but I am glad he's getting his flowers, as they say, and hmm. getting a bit of love, not just from the Arsenal supporters, but the wider football world too. He deserves it for the performances he's put in. And as as we are saying, I mean, you know, general media coverage is sort of talking about this like it's an overnight thing and it's just happened, but it's been a pretty steady yeah. changing of opinions. And he's been playing very well for quite a long time. And he's even been playing this slightly more advanced role since about Christmas, so it's not as new as some are making it out. Sure. Like the the commentary on match of the day was pretty painful. Yeah. yeah. Like uh, he scored the goal and three years ago they were booing him and now look, he's the hero and he'll be the hero of all time, whatever the fuck you went on with, you know? It's like, yeah. well, what does the uh, that incident three years ago have to do with this now? Like, I know people always want to try and make comparisons or say, you know. Three years is a really long time. It is a really long time. A lot has happened in three years. And like you say, this is not something that's happened overnight. It's all like all of a sudden. I mean, if it happened in the last game and then he came on and scored a winner against Spurs, whatever it is, you know, it just felt like so forced. 29 years ago, he was a baby (laughs) who couldn't even, you know, Go four hours without pooing himself. And now now look at him. He is able to flush like no Swiss has ever flushed before. It's just so fatuous. You know, it was really... The past is different to the present. (laughs) Things can change. Who knew? 
Who knew? Granite Xhaka has proved to us that in a period of over 1,000 days, people's minds can be changed about something that they once thought but now don't think anymore. Wow. (sighs) Powerful stuff. It really was. But... Yes, there is a bit of a redemption arc there, and uh, it's a, a slower and longer arc than many recognise. But it's really nice, and, and it's warranted. If he wasn't performing on the pitch, it wouldn't have happened, you know? Mm, for sure. And, uh, you know, scoring against Spurs is always a good way to get people on side anyway. So Yeah, that's quite the sort of souvenir um, for any Arsenal career, right? A, a goal and a win over sure. Spurs. Something you remember for a long time. Um, here's one. I know this. Uh, this one will. Uh, this one will. Uh, you'll like this one. Okay. It's from Helcarax or Helsarax or Helsaraxe. I don't know. He's on the Discord anyway. He says, "Goodly morning, gents. If we beat Liverpool this week, is it quietly time to start believing we will be in the title race? If not, what would be the marker that?" Uh, we should start to dream a victory over city top of the table at a certain date. What do you think? Hmm. Cause I know you were telling you were, you were saying to me uh, in the pub on Saturday that, you know, you thought we're, you know, almost definitely going to win the title. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. All that, you know, and I just, <laughs> I'm just holding back on air to, uh, yeah, exactly. You, you don't want to, you don't want to get people too excited. No, but I've heard that we are winning it. <laughs> My sources say we are winning it. The Athletic uh, understands. The Athletic understands. It's in the bag. Um, it's honestly not even on my radar. And and if it is on your radar, fair play to you and enjoy it. And by all means, believe. I'm not at all trying to take that away from you. But I watched Man City today. <laughs> and I'm not really thinking about finishing above them. Um, I guess we'd have to be in it with less than double figures of games remaining. Mm. If we got to 28 games rather than eight and we were in the mix, I think at that point I'd say, right, let's go for it. It's on. Mm. But uh that feels like a we've got a long way to go before i would feel in that position but by all means let's chase it because as i said in part one for me it's all about what separation can we achieve from the rest of the pack if we can keep pace with city like if arsenal if arsenal finish second in this league that's a pretty that's a really good season um so, yeah, I, I, let's, let's try and push on and finish as high as we can and try and keep separation between us and the other contenders for the top four. But hand mm. on heart, I don't I don't really think we can win the league. What about you? When does it become real for when you? When does it become real? Look, um, look uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's... It's impossible, really, to think that we could, in the space of one... So what was the points gap between us and, and Man City last season? Uh, I'll have a look. Uh, it was 20, pretty sizable. 20 yards. Was it that much? The, they finished with 93. We oh. finished with 69. So what's that? 24. Seven, 24 points, yeah. So the idea that we could make up a 24-point gap on... Man City in the space of one season doesn't in a seem... In which they added maybe the best striker in the world. Yeah, it doesn't seem realistic to me. Um, but 
we are winning it. <laughs> but clearly we're going to win the league. Um, <laughs> but when will people believe? That's the question. They'll believe it when... It's like when I'll believe we've signed a player when I see him on the Arsenal website holding up the shirt. When the trophy so is the holding trophy, up the shirt. Yeah, when the trophy is being awarded, I might start to believe then. Look, I, I think... If we get to the World Cup and we're still in the top two, then people will say, with some justification, let's go for it in the January window and try and win this league. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think whether that's realistic or not, I don't know. But if we're given six weeks to think about it across December and January, hmm. there'll definitely be conversations on shows like this about winning the league. Yeah, I don't. I look. I love this team and I love where it's going. I don't think we can realistically beat Manchester City because of everything that goes on at that football club, the resources that have been pumped into it, the the experience of the manager, the experience of the players, the quality of the players that they have, the greater depth that they have. Robot. The, yeah, the robot goal man, robot goal machine, fucking Terminator guy. You know, unless, unless Arnold Schwarzenegger comes back through time to melt him into like... Mercury, he'll just come back to life, though, won't he? He'll just reignite himself as... He can't be killed. He can't be killed. You've got to get him into some kind of furnace. Lure Not him into that. a... Melt him into, like, some kind of metal. But ultimately, I think, realistically, you know, we need to look at this season as one in which we consolidate ourselves in the top four. And I think, based on what we've seen so far... You can be relatively optimistic that that's an achievable goal for us. Yeah. Uh, a title race is different from winning the title, though. Like, if we can stay in touch with Manchester City over the course of this season, that would be that would be huge progress. Huge progress. Um, and obviously, then after that, you've got to build on it and try and do better and, and improve all the time. But this season, I think maybe it's just a little bit too early to think about Arsenal as as uh, potential title winners when the opposition that um, we're going to have to contend with is is as strong as it is. I I, I really strongly agree with that. Yeah. yeah. But listen, let's, let's cling to them. Let's them, melt you know, Erling Haaland, is can. what you're saying. Let's melt him down. Let's melt him down and win the league. Yeah. For God's sake. See how fucking Pep deals with that. How are you going to score goals now when your strikers just melted goo? It's not going to happen, is it? He'll go back to the false nine, I reckon. And they'll still win it. And they'll still win it, yeah. <laughs> right, well, will we leave it there for now? Because I guess we've got to get this out. And it is um, getting late. And I'm quite tired. I've done a lot of yeah. traveling today. And it's been a long sort of weekend and and everything else. So we should probably leave it there, right? Yeah, I think so. I think we've covered it. I think we've covered everything from Arsenal being brilliant, Spurs being cunts, and liquefying Norwegians. What more could people want from a podcast? <laughs> to be fair, because I know we have some Norwegian listeners, it's just one specific Norwegian we want to. Yeah, not all of you. Not all of you. We, Martin Odegaard is safe. He is. I did enjoy, I saw an interview he did with, um, what's his name? Fjortoft. Jan Arga Fjortoft. Yeah. It was in Norwegian, 
but I understood it because they put subtitles on, which was very um, considerate of them. Generous. Yeah. And he was joking with them about like, you know, you're in the title race. You're going to go for the title. And he was saying, look, just, you know, we've got to keep our feet in the ground. We're going well. We're very happy. But, you know, it's very early days in the season. We're just keeping our feet. And then he said to him, but seriously, Martin, are you practicing lifting the trophy? And he said, calm down, you which I thought was a great way of putting it. So, uh, <laughs> Shut up, Jan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he needs to get melted as well. We'll see. Yeah. You're going in the big melting pot. Yeah, we'll have to. Early. But you know what will happen then? They'll emerge as like a super Janaga Fjortoft. Janaga Haaland. Yeah, the crossbred, slightly less good Norwegian striker. Good in the air, though, at times. Yeah, that's true. Mm. All right. Well, look, we will think about what kind of monsters we're going to create with our melting furnace thing. Um, to you guys, uh, as always, thank you very much indeed for being here. It is a busy schedule, a hectic schedule. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen this week in terms of podcasts, but we will do stuff for you on Patreon. We'll have the uh, post-game podcast probably on Friday. What time is the Bodo Glimt game? Is it 6 or is it uh, 7? It 45? is one of the 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock. I don't, I really dislike 8 o'clock. I don't know what yeah. the difference is between 7.45 and 8. but I, minutes. Thanks. But I hate it. It does make the whole thing a lot later, doesn't it? It does, yeah. I don't know why I hate it so much, but I do. Anyway, we'll cover all of it because October is going to be football mayhem and podcast mayhem and blog mayhem and everything else. So we'll, uh, we'll make sure you're up to date and everything else. For now, though, take it easy and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.